There is, in my opinion, no more feminist a film than Chicken Run, and I sincerely believe that. Children grow up to be adults, some of them will end up running our society. Mm. We should be making sure that what they are watching is something that we want them to grow up and internalize. Dr. Ruben Fung, film buff, self-proclaimed big kid, buzzkill? One of my favorite party tricks is asking someone what their favorite children's film is and ruining it for them. Disney yeah. has done so much in the last few decades to really um, modernize its programming. This Disney movie has landed a Bay Area teacher in some trouble. And it features a gay character in a prominent role. The Wild Thornberrys movie is certainly a white savior narrative and I apologize for ruining this film for anyone who was a fan. The film that we're going to look at is Ratatouille. The 2007 Pixar Disney film, possibly my favorite animated film, that is what we're about to dive into. Using animals in children's films, you can sneak in some subversive mm. or not necessarily conscious messages, mm. right? You can tell stories that maybe children wouldn't ordinarily sit through. This episode comes with a warning. It may somewhat ruin Ratatouille for you. And Stuart Little, and Chicken Run, and The Land Before Time. Because today we're talking about children's films, specifically films that feature anthropomorphic characters. Basically, any animated movie that has animals who talk or act like a human in some way, shape, or form. Why, you ask? Well, you won't believe the messaging that those characters, their relationships, and the stories they inhabit are sending through the screen. And guess who's taking in all that messaging? Our kids. Let's press play with Dr. Ruben Fong. This is PhD Unpacked. How did you wind up deciding that academia was, was the path that you were going to take? Well, I, I sort of fell into it. So my family are very big into education. They're, you know, they're very supportive. Um, and so both of my sisters, you know, they're older than me. They went to university. All my cousins, all my cousins are older than me. They went to university. So... It was really expecting me. I had to go to university. I didn't. I didn't really know what for. I just knew I had to go and do something. Um, and I had okay grades for media studies in high school, so I thought I'd I'd, I'd continue doing that. Um, and I thought maybe I'd go to university. I'd I'd become like an actor or like a screenwriter. Um, I, you know, I didn't have any any real uh, fixed path. But then what happened was I got to university, and I think the middle of my first year at university, I watched my media lecturers just blow my mind with insights. And they weren't necessarily insights about filmmaking or, you know, about cinema. They're, because media studies is not just about how to make films. It, you know, it's a part of that. But a lot of media studies is about learning about the world in which we live through the media that we're watching. So... A lot of the time, these media lecturers who were blowing my mind weren't talking just about films. They were talking about things in the real world. And, you know, I think by the end of my first year of university, I looked at all those lecturers who impressed me and I thought, like, I got to do that somehow. And, you know, in order to become a lecturer, you need a PhD. So I started thinking, you know, at the end of my bachelor's degree, what was I going to do a PhD on? Mm. Um... I, I had this half-hearted idea to write about North Korean cinema because I was interested in geopolitics and propaganda at the time. Um, so I went to the PhD um, advisor uh, for our department and I said, hey, 
you know, maybe I, maybe I should write about North Korean cinema. And the advisor said, yeah, but you got to remember two things. One, you have to learn how to speak Korean, which, which I don't, I, I sadly can't speak Korean. And they also said, and you might be on some government watch lists for the rest of your life. So that sort of was the end of that. That's as far as that got. Yeah. So then I started thinking, well, what, are, what, are, what else could I be doing? And I really did want to write about children's films for two, for two reasons. One is I'm a big kid. Uh, I love the Muppets. I love a lot of, you know, I think a lot of the Disney stuff holds up. Uh, so children's films was something I was really interested in. And for my master's degree, I wrote a th uh, my dissertation about anthropocentrism uh, in children's films, that idea that humans are the most important animals, mm. uh, or, or the idea that humans are not animals at all. And I looked at that through the lens of children's films because that thinking, you know, starts very young. And as what happens with most PhD uh, candidates, I'm sure, is I got to the end of my master's and thought, I have only scratched the surface of this. I need to take this way further. And so I talked to my, or I ended up talking to the people who became my PhD supervisors. And they said, there is something interesting here about talking animals and the way that, you know, those anthropomorphic animals tell children and, you know, and, and tell adults something about who we are. Mm. You outline five different categories, different kinds of anthropomorphism with a few different films within each category. And, and we probably won't have time to go to, to every single film. I think, I think you mentioned you probably watched over 50 films in the research of this. <laughs> There's no time to talk about all 50, but in the research, you point to a few different key films. And I've chosen sort of one within each category to explore. Mm. Let's start off with the first category of anthropomorphism that is explored via the film, the absolute classic chicken run oh. the 2000 uh, stop motion animation film by the the Ardman production house sort of famously known for they wallace and gromit wallace, and gromit, wallace yes. gromit right um i watched chicken run last night as preparation for this i must say for the first time in years for me it existed as like the great childhood scary yeah. film uh that existed in my psyche i don't think i've seen chicken run for like 10 years and 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 i've been thinking about it for the last wee while and then along comes this interview a reason to sit down and watch it can you tell us about the the category of anthropomorphism which you've called uh lost in translation maybe before we dive into chicken run specifically what is lost in translation as as a as a category of anthropomorphism so lost in translation refers to films you know, children's films with anthropomorphic animals who cannot communicate with humans, right, on any level. And so this is really the lowest level of that phrase I used before, phenomenological proximity. Um, and so, you know, there is definitely these idea of binaries. So the idea between human, non-human is definitely emphasized by that. And I think that because that, you know, we often think of gender as a binary and i'm not saying that gender is a binary but historically that ha has been one way in it which that mm. aspect of identity has been understood that lost in translation films often emphasize that gender aspect and looking at and when you look at those anthropomorphic animals and their relationship with humans 
it really emphasizes that that masculine feminine dyad mm. um and children's films you know haven't gotten enough attention from you know from you know from critical thinkers and like and talking animals in children's films definitely hasn't gotten mm. a lot of, a lot of attention um and one of the things that's really interesting about that is there are opportunities for filmmakers to be subversive about the stories in which they're telling. Something that I, I thought about last night is that uh, in America right now, you know, there are a lot of right-wing politicians who are going after drag queens um, and, you know, and trying to stop children from being exposed to drag queens because they think that somehow drag queens will, will, will corrupt children, but they will not go after the most famous drag queen of them all, Miss Piggy from The Muppets. You know, Miss Piggy has always been puppeteered and voiced by a man. And, you know, you think about it. Yes, like, of course, Miss Piggy is a drag queen. But those same politicians who will attack drag queens will not go after Miss Piggy because she's a talking animal Mm. in a children's film franchise. She is flying under the radar. And I'm not saying that this is a good or bad thing, but it is something to think about. Mm. Children are often seeing ideas through these talking animals in children's films that adults are just not thinking about Mm. at all. Mm. Um, Anyway, going back to Chicken Run. Yeah, and Lost in Translation, I I guess (laughs) something that might be helpful to to frame it for people that that I found helpful reading the PhD is in Lost in Translation films, the animals, like the toys in Toy Story, that Mm. when the humans appear, kind of fall on the ground and revert back to their, their... real life state the animals in in lost in translations films whenever typically sort of seen by human characters act as normal animals and they fulfill a more i guess traditional animal like space the thing that is most often projected onto the animals is not age it's not race it's not religion Mm gender is the thing that is planted on these creatures and i really like the example that you used about alex the lion from madagascar as kind of being this this masculine animal that's that exists in this this kind of group of other characters and and you know what does it mean to be like a masculine animal but as we think about chicken run as an example of lost in translation can you explain how kind of the specifics manifest in that film in terms of you know gender is a big element violence as well as another element when i when i have discussions about my phd this is this is my Mm go-to line there is in my opinion no more feminist a film than chicken run and i sincerely believe that uh, because chicken run is a film about misogynistic institutional control there's been interesting child developmental studies about how children see difference and the first difference that children identify is gender so if you say what's the difference between these two people whether it's race age um you know you know class they 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 go for gender first and so lost in translation films i think because the phenomenological proximity is quite low and so that that human like quality is is there but it's not fully there, then gender ends up coming to the forefront. Mm. So Chicken Run is a film uh, about some chickens who live in an egg farm. Because they are chickens, all of the chickens are coded as women. They lay eggs for the farmers, 
And if they don't lay the eggs, then the farmers kill them and eat them. Um, I shouldn't sound so happy about that. The chickens have to lay eggs, which is symbolic of feminine gender capital, right? The idea that these chickens, they must be performing their, gen their gender identity to the standard of the institution that houses them, or else they are, you know, for want of a better word, murdered mm. by, the, by that institution. The, you know, so these symbolic women who don't live up to the expectation mm. of their gender identity are not only taken out of the institution, they nourish that institution that has been controlling them. You're not saying that, that um, gender is binary. What you're saying mm. is that these films produce a product, a creative medium that, that suggests to the world, particularly in children, that this is how we are placing these characters within a specific gender trope and mm. within this specific film. What the narrative says is that the role of women within this world is to serve a job. And if they don't serve that job, they're deemed worthless and literally killed for the, for the pleasure of, of the humans. And, and it's really interesting in Chicken Run, you talk about this in your research, that the human characters actually kind of live in this, this, uh, this space where, you know, Miss Tweedy uh, is this really strong, assertive, of clearly an antagonist. antagonist but she is the dominant character of the two with the mr tweedy who's the kind mm -hmm. of bumbling fool character and when you think about how the chickens relate to the humans they don't communicate in the way that uh you know other films that will explore uh, you know they cannot understand mm -hmm. each other but what the film is is clearly stating for everyone that that watches it is within the world of this film in this kind of concentration camp-esque situation these feminine characters are forced to do one thing and ultimately it's an escape story the chickens are trying to escape from that world which you know when i first watched chicken run and and they're going through the pie machine it's really scary and i can recognize the the fear in that story but i wasn't thinking about you know the 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 feminist undertones mm -hmm. of it and and when you go back and watch chicken run you know having thought about these things from reading your phd it's like whoa this <laughs> film is 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 saying so much stuff that you know you may or may not absorb as a child mm -hmm. but it's there one of my favorite party tricks is asking someone what their favorite children's film is and ruining it for them. Yeah. You touch on this interesting point about the Tweedies. So mm. Mrs. Tweedy, you know, is the very domineering, very vicious uh, woman, whereas Mr. Tweedy is very soft. He's very submissive <laughs> to his wife. And so the idea is that he is not being a very masculine man mm. because he is submissive and he is not taking initiative. And she is not being, quote unquote, a very feminine woman by being, you know, domineering and being very, very vicious and and wanting to start a successful, successful right. business yeah. and make money. And this is something that, you know, children's films do a lot where they will villainize certain characters for not fulfilling that gender expectation, right? The idea that they are wicked somewhat because they are not fulfilling that masculine or feminine identity to which they are, they, you know, are supposed to be aspiring. Mm. To the next uh, genre, which you call uh, First Contact. And I will say right off the bat, the film that we're going to look at is Ratatouille. The 2007 Pixar Disney film, possibly my favorite animated film. But before we get to the specifics of that film, can you talk about 
I guess first contact as a as a as an overall genre of anthropomorphism and the key ideas that exist in that sort of genre as a whole. Yeah, so first contact films are films where an animal and a human learn to communicate and that they learn that they have roughly equal sentience. Um, so Ratatouille is one, B-Movie is another. And these films are all about renegotiating boundaries. Mm. And, you know, it's, it's, it's almost like Pocahontas, the idea of when you bring in two different kinds of people together, what sort of, what sort of limits will be set? And so because these are films that are all about renegotiating boundaries, these are films that I find are often about social class because mm -hmm. social class is something that is often viewed as something that can be changed much more easily than other aspects of your identity. Mm. So, you know, changing your race or changing your sexuality or changing your gender, those seem like largely immutable things, but your social class is something that that can fluctuate. Mm. And so because these are films where humans and animals are renegotiating what they understand uh, as normal, these are films that are often about social mobility. Mm. And although they are films about social mobility, the social classes are often marked by, uh, you know, indicators of race and ethnicity. That when children sort of reach uh, primary school age, they are associating certain kinds of identity with each other. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that they will often uh, pair together is you know, race and ethnicity with social class. Mm -hmm. They will make uh, assumptions about people, you know, and I'm not saying that this is, that, that children are problematic for thinking this. This is just something that develops mm -hmm. in children's ways of thinking. Yeah. So these, so first contact films are about social mobility, but they're also about race. Yeah. Let's dive into how this idea of first contact applies within the story of Ratatouille. Ratatouille is about a rat who aspires uh, to be a great chef, uh, and not just uh, you know, not just a great chef in the rodent world, <laughs> but in the human, human world. world. So he meets, yeah. So he meets a garbage boy called Linguini, um, and you know they they eventually learn that they you know they they are of the same intelligence, mm -hmm. and that Remy the rat can manipulate Linguini's body like a puppet through like hiding on his head and pulling his hairs, um, and they hide him with a chef's hat. And one of the things that's interesting here is that the humans in this film uh, are coded as very upper class. Mm -hmm. um, they're most, you know, aside from Linguini, they're all Europeans. They're all gourmands. Mm. Uh, they work at a very uh, impressive three-star, you know, a, a Michelin three-star restaurant. Whereas the, the rats are coded as very lower class um they've got that sort of new york accent mm. and one of the things that if you if you stop to think about it, you're thinking should you really be portraying the symbolic working class people as rodents yeah <laughs> there is something problematic i feel about looking at lower class people or working class people as pests mm. right and you know, if you think about it, that is kind of what the film is is trying to articulate about that difference between 
the working class and the upper class. Yeah, if you look at Ratatouille on the surface, you think, well, it's a story about someone who, who wouldn't have access to something, pursuing his dreams, and anything is possible, anyone can cook mm. is the great kind of tagline of the story. But in order to frame that story, what the film does is it puts a certain... Uh, group of of characters in this case rats they give them all like a specific uh new york style accent and then it says in comparison to these pests uh the the upper class french uh fine dining world uh the humans and this style of of people are allowed in this institution in a way that other people aren't and and one thing that's really interesting about the film is is when the uh, uh, Remy sort of takes control of of the the cooking, he is still not allowed to be out in the open. Ratatouille doesn't end with Remy being uh, uh, a famous chef, the person that's known to be cooking. The humans go, oh yes, rats can cook. He still has to operate in the background of the kind of human linguine character in the restaurant at the end of the film. So even when some characters within the film world decide, yes, this, this sort of pest class of people have some talent within cooking even at the end of the film he has to do it behind the curtain because he's still never accepted within the kind of social class coding that happens in in the world which it's i mean it's sad because i love i love the film and for me it's about beautifully animated um, animated cooking but like you said when you stop and you take a step back and you're like what is what is this film really telling us about two groups of people coming together interacting for the first time and ultimately saying that while these two individual characters might deem it okay the rest of the world will still never accept that these two groups of people can can coexist right so this you know ratatouille is not a film about breaking down social class barriers on a widespread scale as i said before the process by which animals are made anthropomorphic is not a neutral process mm. ratatouille did not necessarily have to be about rats mm. right why did they choose rats yeah. and one of the reasons is because there is a difference between a rat and a colony of rats mm -hmm. right so you know I, I i think some people would, would agree that one rat is quite cute yeah some people keep rats as pets they're very intelligent right? creatures but Hundreds of rats is terrifying and disgusting, yeah. right? And the idea that, you know, when you single out one rat, it, it goes through this, you know, process of cleansing, right? The idea that because it is one rat, it is not dirty. Whereas if it was hundreds of rats, you know, they would be, you know, filthy. And so part of that social mobility that Remy enjoys is, you know, by definition, individual. It mm -hmm. is only allowed for him. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it that sort of puts a lid on the amount of social mobility that might be encouraged. Yeah, and ultimately that is where the film ends. You know, the, 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 the family of rats do benefit from this kind of new human-animal relationship that happens, but just because they're eating slightly better food at the end does not mean their status within this <laughs> fictional world in which rats and humans exist together in that sort of way nothing has actually changed and i guess to to draw back out to this idea of of first contact and what those kind of films say about uh, uh social mobility and ethnic coding is that at the end of the day and this is this is the, the film world speaking not us speaking at the end of the day only so much change is possible which is like 
really problematic to put in front of kids. I mean, and for all audiences. Right. Trickle down ratonomics, I think they should call it. Yeah. Yeah. Let's move on to the the third genre of anthropomorphism, which is called uh, The Tourist. And the film that we're ultimately going to get to is the Wild Thornberrys movie, the 2002 Paramount Nickelodeon film. Tourist films as this this subgenre of anthropomorphism uh, refers to films where there's a very specific relationship between the humans and the non-human characters, which you describe as this kind of artificial form of interspecies kindness. Can you unpack the tourist for us a little bit more? So to differentiate the tourist from first contact, in first contact, there is some spontaneous meeting, right, between these two uh, these two peoples, the, you know, the humans and the animals. Remy is sitting over the pot doing the herbs and this kind of just just happens. They right. just happen across each it's other. Some, yeah, it's something spontaneous and irreversible. Whereas tourist films are about that artificial uh, kinship between humans and animals. So these humans or these animals are, you know, tourists in the other, you know, in the other species um, domain, mm. right? So... Now, as we'll get into, in The Wild Thornberries, Eliza Thornberry can talk to animals, but it's not spontaneous. So in The Wild Thornberries world, I mean, many people have grown up watching it, but if you haven't, you know, Eliza Thornberry is this person that is gifted the ability to uh, speak to animals. I think she frees a, a warthog that turns out to be a shaman. The shaman gifts her the ability to speak to animals, and she just happens to be the daughter of this kind of famous uh, zoological couple that travel the world telling stories and, and the sort of David Attenborough-esque description and, and videography of, of animals in the wild. And of course, Eliza Thornberry there can, can speak to animals, but no one else must know. How does the Wild Thornberry's film explore this idea of uh, the tourist? So tourist films, you know, because they are films about visiting, you know, another place, I feel that they often lean into this idea of nationality and national identity. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not to say that all tourist films are white savior narratives but the wild thornberries movie mm. is certainly a white savior narrative and i apologize for ruining this film for anyone who was a fan and the tv show and the tv show um but this is a film about a white girl eliza thornberry who goes to kenya and tries to stop you know some poachers from you know from from taking uh, the native animals and the native animals are stand-ins, right, for the indigenous people of Kenya. Or, you know, if you look at the wild thornberries of the show, you know, the, the, the animals are often stand-ins for the indigenous peoples. And Eliza Thornberry, in this film, is the only person who seems to care whether or not, you know, these poachers are going to hunt these indigenous animals. And, at, you know, at, at the end of the movie, she is the only person who is able to stop mm. the poachers mm. from getting away, you know, getting away with, te- you know, hunting, hunting those animals. Talking of the ways in which the film represents Kenya. Um, so, you know, and this is very common, actually, in children's films. The idea that if it's, you know, if, it, if it's a country in Africa, that there aren't really people who live there, right? Mm. The film uses those animals as, you know, as stand-ins for indigenous Kenyans in the movie. There's that idea that the only way that these white people who are poaching can be stopped is with another white person. Mm -hmm. Those symbolic indigenous Kenyans 
have no agency. They don't have any power、mm. in the ways in which you know white people are going to colonize、mm. or dominate, right? So you know, and, th- and so there is that idea of、uh, white people. You know, white people can、um, can can do terrible things, but the only way to stop those terrible things is with another white person. And th- you know, this this probably sounds obvious when you hear it out loud. The you know Eliza Thornberry is a white human girl, and the you know indigenous Kenyan animals are stand-ins for the local you know they're they're stand-ins for Kenyans, and so these Kenyans have been literally dehumanized、mm. in the、mm. film, right?、Mm. And not to say that you know not not to say that animal life has less worth than human life,、mm. but. <laughs> There, you know, I think there is a general perception that you know humans are more important. That we live in an anthropocentric society where humans have more cachet than animals, right?、Yeah. So by choosing to have the white characters be human and the symbolic people of color be animals,、mm. right? There is that hegemonic difference.、Mm. Mm-hmm. So let's move into the fourth、uh, subgenre of anthropomorphism, which is called. The post-colonial and and the the film that we'll focus on is Stuart Little, the 1999 Columbia and Sony production. Tell us more about the po- post-colonial as an example of of、uh, the specific kind of anthropomorphism.、Mm-hmm. So, the post-colonial films are where animals have the highest level of that that phrase I use again phenomenological proximity, where these animals are. You know they live very similar, if not identical, lives、mm. to humans. You know, as as we said in the beginning, Who Framed Roger Rabbit has talking animals who live in houses and have jobs and pay rent.、Um, or you know, if you look at Sesame Street, right? So Sesame Street, they all live in the same the same buildings. They all communicate with the same language. They share the same sort of hobbies, and、mm. in terms of how they're depicted, there's more of a focus on them having more human-like.、Uh, Anatomy, like fingers and toes, and 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 in comparison to say Chicken Run, where、mm-hmm. you know the chickens, for the most part, are quite chicken esque. In Stuart Little,、um, you know he is he is clothed in different ways, and while he is he is not, he isn't he clearly is not human、mm-hmm. within the narrative of that film. He is shown to have similar interests and a lifestyle to、mm-hmm. to two humans.、Um, tell us about the the. This idea of kind of sameness or or dissimilarities within within post-colonial films, because that's kind of at the crux of it, right? The idea that,、uh, well, ultimately, if if we put them in a certain situation, animals within these worlds can can exist in the same way and as as humans, which I know seems quite similar to, to First Contact, but there is a difference, right? Yeah. So post-colonial films, you know, are different from First Contact in that the starting point is that. The humans and the animals are on a level playing field,、mm-hmm. and so because they're on a level playing field, the difference between the humans and animals often becomes a deconstruction of difference. Right, that idea that their difference is not as important as their sameness, and so when you you know look at Stuart Little through this lens, and I think this is. You know this. This again is is pretty obvious when you hear it. Stuart Little is not a film. About rats. It's a film about disability and the the ways in which disability can be overcome.、Mm. He, you know, so Stuart Little, he's two inches tall, and 
he cannot initially do all of the things that his foster brother wants to do. He can't play ball with him. But the film, the film's message is that the, his Stuart's foster family, the Littles, learn to accept Stuart, you know, and learn that his the differences that make him unique do not disadvantage him with enough time and enough care. Mm. Which I think is interesting because when I was going through all the different kinds of anthropomorphism, this kind of st- stood out to me as a potentially, I don't want to say less problematic, but but mm. the what this subgenre speaks to is the idea that difference can be overcome in a way that, you know, potentially on the side of the coin is, is first contact, which the end of Ratatouille says difference cannot really be overcome one rat can cook in a restaurant and one food critic might decide that yes anyone can cook but ultimately the society and food in paris does not change whereas within that specific family world within stuart little by the end of the film the message is that like stuart can be integrated into this into this world which when i was thinking about it was like oh maybe stuart little like as a film has a has a kind of de- half decent message. What a shock animated kids film. Yeah, I, I, like I'm sure it is. You know, I, I, I you know, I, I'm, I am not physically. I do not have any physical disabilities, but I imagine that you could tell the story of Stuart Little about a boy in a wheelchair, and mm. it wouldn't be all too different. Mm. But again, using animals in children's films, you can sneak in some subversive mm. or uh, you know, not necessarily conscious messages, mm. right? You can tell stories that, you know, maybe children wouldn't ordinarily sit through. Mm. Um, so, yeah, the idea of, of using the rat as symbolic of a disability gets awareness out there yeah. without making it too explicit. Yeah, and it's I guess it's an interesting example to suggest, you know, this idea of animals within animated kids' films what what you're coming in here with your research is not to say every single animal within a kid's film is problematic and teaching our children bad things. Often that is the case, as we have explored. There is there is a, a large range of problematic anthropomorphism within films, but it can you know, there are versions of stories where you can be using animals within the worlds of humans to to teach uh children you know positive Mm. lessons as as is the case within films and tv shows that we haven't spoke to for example you know you you mentioned miss piggy and and the muppets as like a really interesting character device um let's move into the final uh final version of anthropomorphism which is the sentinel can you explain the sentinel uh, category of anthropomorphism and how it is how it Mm. is different than the other four so the sentinel category is our films where there are no humans at all. There are only the animals mm-hmm. on screen. And the reason it's called the sentinel is I based it off the North Sentinel Island tribe. The North Sentinel Island tribe live on an island that has so far you know, largely been untouched mm-hmm. by the rest of civilization. And th- sentinel films focus, I think, mainly on chosen families. So, mm-hmm. you know, we have what we call families of origins, you know, so people who you are born to or people you marry and, you know, have kids with. And then you have your chosen families, uh, the, the families which you pick up along the way, friends, acquaintances. And 
The reason for this is that often animals are considered to be extensions of people.、Mm -hmm. So if you think of, you know, a, a you know someone's pet. So you know a, a lot of a lot of men don't like owning a cat. Because the idea is that that would make them less of a man, because that cat would be an extension of them.、Mm. Now, if you have animals、uh, who, where there are no humans are around, then those animals don't really have. You know, those animals are not extensions of people.、Mm -hmm. And the idea, you know, and and what I think the Sentinel films do is they focus on chosen families a lot of the time. Because if they were focusing on families of origin, then there would be this idea that animals would exist, you know, perpetually without、mm. people,、mm. which is a, I think, a hard thing for a lot of people to conceptualize. Yeah, and these sentinel films, because there are no humans, ultimately the 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 animals are not. Predicated on on the existence of the the humans and and there's a suggestion in your your research that because of that the the films can be kind of more about social unity and cohesion because there is not that that clash with with the human. This idea of chosen family is kind of derived from the rainbow community and that、uh, to to quote from your research that individuals create non. Consanguinal. I don't know if that's right. The right pronunciation. Family units where they experience、uh, or fear rejection from their 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 born to family, and so that was really fascinating to me that this this idea of chosen families could could come from from that societal、uh, existence and and how that is reflected in these kinds of children's films、uh, that feature animals and no humans, and that the animals. Within these narratives, are sort of bound together with people that are sort of thrust upon them for various reasons of a specific story, and have to decide whether those people will become their new family or, or not. And, and and perhaps in order to unpack that, we should we should dive into a specific film. I really want to talk about the Land Before Time because for me that was a really defining. I I remember going to the video easy video shop and getting the Land Before Time out. I can remember the sort of the pain of of Littlefoot's mother、uh, dying at the start of the film. Tell us about the Land Before Time and what it does from a a chosen family story、mm. perspective.、Uh, well, first of all, a lot of the films that I chose to write about,、uh, I did see as a child and loved. The Land Before Time was not one of them. Interesting,、um, but everybody kept talking to me about it, and I felt、uh, sort of peer pressured into,、uh, you know, giving it a go. And so, you know, you, you probably will will know this off the top of your head.、Um, what is the long necks?、Uh, you know, the the main. So, so the the five dinosaurs are Littlefoot, Littlefoot. Ducky,、yeah. Petrie, Sarah, and Spike,、Thank、and、you. they come across this kind of、yeah. sixth character Chomper, which is the、mm. like. The young T Rex. They're, they're all different kinds of dinosaurs. dinosaurs. Yes. So Littlefoot starts with you know the mother and I think the grand. There is a grandfather figure. Yes. And what you said, you know, that you have Littlefoot's mother, her death is burned into your memory. Yeah. One of the things that's affecting about that is it's an exploration of grief,、mm -hmm. and grief is not something that a lot of children's films will sit with、mm. for a while, right? So you know Simba. Does 
feel sad when his father dies. Um, but it's, it's, you know, two scenes at most. And then Hakuna Matata comes in and right. we're, all, we're yeah. all happy days. Or when Bambi's mother gets shot, it's Bambi gets over that like within one scene transition. And so there is a lot of grief there about the death of someone in Littlefoot's family of origin, mm. right? So, so Littlefoot is sitting with the, the loss of their biological mother. Mm. And then the film, as you say, brings in these other dinosaurs, right, uh, who are very different. And I think it's, it's explicitly said in the beginning of the film that, you know, long necks don't... They don't associate with each other. Right. It's important to say the, 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 the dinosaur characters didn't grow up on the same playground. Mm. They're kind of thrust together in this, this group of circumstance where they're all trying to go about and, and have the same goal of reaching this, mm. this kind of magical place where everything will be okay, the Great Valley. Mm. And so it's by coming together, you know, and especially through that grief of his family of origin, that Littlefoot finds that chosen family which gives him the strength to carry on to mm. that Great Valley. And it's all about the, the, the friends we made on, on the way, which is possibly like a popular narrative within lots of kids' animated films. Is mm. It's all about the friendships you make. It's about the people you meet along the way. What I found really interesting talking about The Land Before Time is at the end of the film, these friendships have been made. The dinosaurs have befriended this sort of T-Rex baby chomper, which shouldn't happen because, you know, uh, uh, <laughs> meat eater versus plant eater yes. shouldn't cross. But then at the end of the film, they reach the, the Great Valley and they all rekindle with the exception of, of one dinosaur with their family. And the message of the story is that the family, the, mm -hmm. the born to family will outlast the friendships. I think it says at the end of the film, and they kind of all grew up together in time, but even though that this film spends so long saying these friends, they meet each other, they go through great strife, when they're given the opportunity to realign with their born-to families, that is where they will kind of always mm. lean towards, which was killer for me because I was like, the Land Before Time, great family story of, of friendship and chosen families. Mm. But actually, when you think about it, at the end, when they reunite with the auntie and the grandpa, and, and that is uh, ultimately the film kind of suggests that the, that is all that mattered, that they reunited mm. with that. Sorry. There's a message that comes across that chosen families are great until you can get back to your families of origin. Yeah, yeah. When you are finishing up your research and, and you're thinking about these kind of animated kids films when you think about you know the research a few years on if someone was to ask you about it and, and then and then be like well, why should i care about animated kids films what is the kind of quick reflection summary of it when we think about all those different ways that animals are used within animated kids films and the specific stories that they tell both mm. children and adults anyone who sits down and watches right. them i'm not a parent um so I, you know, and and I would never dare to tell parents what what films that they should choose, you know, should screen for their kids. But I would, you know, I would want people to start thinking critically about the films that their children are watching. As we've discussed, there are a lot of ideas in these films that you don't necessarily think about as a kid, and when you know when you grow up and start thinking about it, you think, oh, you know, what what is this saying, right? And, you know, and lots of children see films on repeat. You know, I'm sure that I saw Chicken Run 10, 15 times that year that it came out on VHS and thinking, what is it saying? 
how are we internalizing certain messages? And, you know, people might blow this off because they're thinking, what, what's the point? These are, these are children, right? They, they have no power. But children grow up to be adults. And the kind of society that we want is going to be informed by what the children of today are going to end up thinking tomorrow. And ultimately, films just uh, as, as, a, as a part of media studies as a whole are something that we continue to come back to as a part of popular culture. Mm. Uh, uh, me watching Chicken Run last night, me watching The Wild Thornberries a few nights ago, yes, I came back to them for the purpose of this, this PhD specifically, but these are always things that continue to exist on Disney+, Plus, on mm. Netflix, on any of these streaming channels. And I think it's really interesting to think about you know, most of these films are sort of in the 2000s to 2010s period mm-hmm. where animated films are going now in terms of both animals. There's a lot of films that exist in this kind of non-animal but non-human characters, mm-hmm. the sort of films like Inside Out, Elemental, yep. ones that come to mind. As we consider how animated films that are predominantly aimed at children continue to change and shift, being mindful of what are the roles that those characters are playing within those stories and what are they teaching us? Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people think of children as dumb adults, Mm. right? The idea that what, you know, how does a child think? Well, like I think, but with less sophistication. But childhood is a fundamentally different experience than adulthood. And I'm not, you know, and it's not to say that children can't relate to adults sometimes and, you know, sometimes adults can relate to children, But when you are a child, you are experiencing the world in a very different way. And what you are watching, you know, you know, what you are watching as a child affects you differently than it would if you were an adult. Mm. Well, you've given us so much to think about. Thank you so much, Ruben, for for coming on to PhD Unpacked and and being being a part of the show. I look forward to going back and rewatching as many of the films within the thesis as possible, but also thinking about uh, uh, anthropomorphism through films that are uh, not listed in your movie and uh, movie list and and films that are coming forward. Um, before we wrap up, is there anything final that you wanted to add or touch on? Ah, uh, one of the things that I've gotten very interested in in the last couple of years is the representation of police in children's media you know with the black lives matters protests going on and our rethinking of the criminal justice system and how poor patrol fits into that my nephew is one and a half years old and his first movie was poor patrol and i'm thinking what you know what what are we teaching children about police you know, in the, in the media that they are watching, and how is that you know, and how is that foundational to our understanding of how society is structured? Well, something that maybe you'll have a time to explore in in the years coming as you continue your academic pursuits and journal articles and the like. We will certainly be keeping our eye out to see if you do investigate that. But for now, thank you so much for coming on and being a part of the show. The PhD is a difference of kind. Species and Social Difference in Children's Films. Ruben, thanks so much for being here. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. For previous episodes from this season and seasons one and two, check us out on Spotify and Apple Podcasts as well as other listening platforms. And follow us, PhD Unpacked, on Instagram and TikTok.